Hello and welcome to Extra Innings at the Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the LSE. This week we're going to be talking about gun control in the U.S. Uh, in light of the recent very sad shooting in Orlando, uh, where 49 uh, clubgoers uh, were gunned down by Omar Mateen. So, joining me today is Sierra Smucker, a Duke PhD student who's also a visiting student here at the U.S. Center, and Sasha Milanova, who is the comms manager at the, Dar- the Darendorf Forum here and associate with LSE Ideas, and Denise Barron, who's our podcast producer here at the uh, U.S. Center. So to give some background, I just thought I'd give some statistics about gun violence and guns in the U.S. for, for people out there who don't know. So in the U.S., guns actually kill about 33,500 people every year. It's a similar number to car accidents. And according to the Center for Disease Control, about 21,000 are suicides. So it's a much bigger number than I think is generally known. So about 11,000 of those total are actually homicides. The remainder are unintentional or illegal interventions, such as uh, police killing uh, people and things like that. Mass shootings may seem like they happen a lot, but they're actually a tiny part of this uh, 33,000 total. So handguns also account for 70% of all gun deaths. So according to an article in the Washington Post last year, which we'll link to in the show notes, there are nearly 360 million guns in the U.S., which is actually more than one per person. And U.S. gun makers have doubled their annual output since 2009 to about 11 million guns per year. So a study last year in the American Journal of Medicine found that the U.S. gun homicide rate is actually 25 times higher in the U.S. than other high-income countries. And for those aged between 15 and 24, the rate is 49 times higher. Of the 23 high-income countries that that the researchers studied, 82% of all people killed by firearms were from the U.S. And so gun deaths are actually disproportionately tilted towards people of color as well. A Brookings study found that between 2011 and 2013, Guns killed black men at a rate of 34 per 100,000, and these were mostly homicides. This was compared to 17 per 100,000 for white men, which were mostly suicides. Digging into age ranges paints an even bleaker picture. The death rate for black men between 20 to 29 was 90 per 100,000. For white men, it's 20. So with all those statistics in mind, we'll go on to our main bit of discussion. So, Sierra, your your PhD research looks at the intersection of domestic violence and gun control. That's right, isn't it? That's correct, Chris. And uh, so maybe you could just talk a bit about the background to your research and, and what you found and how it relates to the sort of the trends that we're seeing now. Sure. So I just want to start off by just mentioning the Second Amendment quickly because there's a lot of somewhat incorrect theorizing about the role of the Second Amendment in the U.S.'s larger gun control or gun obsession. Um, the Second Amendment obviously um, guarantees the people, the right to bear arms. Um, And it's been used consistently by gun rights groups to sort of put a legal backing to their claims to to gun rights. But actually, uh, the the Second Amendment has rarely been used, actually has never been used until 2008 to guarantee the individual right for American people to own guns. Hmm. Um, The Supreme Court has actually shot that down upwards of four times. Lower courts have shot that down upwards of 30 times. Um, in 2008, the first Supreme Court ruling reading into the Second Amendment as the individual right to own guns um, was levied in Heller versus the U.S., mm-hmm. which removed D.C.'s law that said that people could not own handguns. So that's actually the first time the Second Amendment has been used to constitutionally enforce the right of American people to own guns. So it's basically been like a rhetorical device, a political argument, but not until 2008 was it actually a legal 
exactly. tool or... If the Second Amendment has been an obstacle to gun control, it's really been as a political, rhetorical strategy by the gun rights movement and not as a constitutional or legal system. So coming from there, my research is on the gun control movement, specifically why it has not been able to muster enough forces to sort of take down the gun rights movement, which has reigned supreme uh, for dozens of years. So the gun control movement is oddly missing from a lot of the history of the U.S. gun um, debate. Um, public opinion polls have shown for decades that American people actually favor some sort of regulation of guns, including gun owners who favor, you know, taking away guns from people that they believe will not use them safely or appropriately. But despite that, we have very little gun regulation in the U.S., as, as you've mentioned. Um, so my question is, given that the gun control movement has been so weak and the NRA and its gun rights movement has been so strong, are there places where we can find uh, evidence of success for the gun control movement and potentially extrapolate from those successes to figure out how the gun control movement might make progress in the U.S. system? So that's where my intersection of domestic violence and gun control comes in. Because in the last five years, several conservative and often very pro-gun states in the U.S. have passed legislation that bars people convicted of misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence from owning, possessing, um, or purchasing firearms. So my research is on these conservative states, some of them include Louisiana, Tennessee, Florida, Texas, South Carolina, who have very low ratings from all gun control groups in terms of their gun policy, but have passed these laws. So I'm looking at how gun control activists and domestic violence prevention activists have come together to make a formidable force to actually take on the NRA and gun rights control proponents successfully. So they have had considerable success in this area that you found so far? Or? Yes, they have had success, um, specifically post-Newtown, which was the uh, tragic shooting of uh, several a dozen first graders in Newtown, Connecticut in the end of 2012. Since then, the gun control movement has seen significant increases in both monetary resources and social and political capital, including um, the entry of... Um, mothers groups who have taken on gun control as part of their policy platform when they hadn't before. Um, obviously, Mayor Bloomberg has given substantially to the gun control cause. Yeah, well, maybe this is a good time for me to jump in. Sure. Um, because in 2013, I was actually doing work for what was then called Mayors Against Illegal Guns um, and Moms Demand Action, and which has now morphed into every town. The moms group has still maintained some of its autonomy in a certain way because they're a really interesting group of moms. But um, basically, they've become this group. But when when we were starting out, this was in the wake of the Newtown shooting, um, and this was in the wake of the Aurora movie theater shooting in July 2012. And basically, at that point, there was a humongous vacuum, like Sierra was saying, of gun violence prevention activism. There were tiny little groups spread out throughout the U.S. that were doing some work, a lot of legislative advocacy on a state level, on local level, city levels in particular, but there weren't, um, there wasn't a national cohesive movement. There wasn't an organization that was pumping in tons and tons of money. And even at that point, Mayors Against Illegal Guns was really obviously working on the municipal level by coordinating with mayors. 
But then following these shootings and, uh, and Mayor Bloomberg's increased commitment to the issue, they basically just filled that void. They have this expansive network of um, survivors of gun violence and family members of gun violence who do, I mean, just heroic work going from state to state to work on these issues. Um, and actually, it's because of that work that Sasha and I even met. Uh, I mean, how many years ago is that at this point? Is that, because that was in 2013, right? Yeah. So three years ago, Sasha and I were in the basement of, um, three years ago, right around now, actually. Yep, July, August. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we were in the, the basement of a home in Pueblo West, Colorado, which was where um, her boss, State Senator Angela Harone, was being recalled because she had voted for gun violence prevention laws that my team and I had worked on at the state capitol. And those were pretty basic laws, like requiring background checks on all gun sales, um, banning high-capacity magazines, over 30 rounds. Um, There's a, a domestic violence bill that was really good. And then there was another bill that didn't exactly pass that was about um, imposing liability on gun manufacturers who are involved in mass shootings. And that one didn't pass. But, but yeah, I mean, Sasha and I are there in this basement. She's coordinating volunteers. But that was after, like, you know, that was basically right in the middle of a long fight, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so Sasha, do you want to talk about what, I mean, so maybe explain a little bit about how, to our UK audience, about why recalls happen at all, what, like, what they are. Who was being recalled, and, and what kind of led up to these two state legislators being recalled for? For I, from what you've said before, their stance on on gun control. Yeah. Um, well, so as Denise said, I was working as a legislative aide to Senator Angela Harone from Pueblo, which is a small uh, town, not so small, a town in southern Colorado. She's a state senator. Yes, yeah, state right. senator. Yeah. Um, and she was in her third year of her first term, and I think it's important to note that Angela did not get into politics to work on gun issues. Uh, she was a progressive Democrat who uh, was an activist long before she was a senator, and her goals were um, bills such as the Colorado Asset Bill, which was uh, about granting in-state tuition for undocumented students who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford college. Um, her other issues were juvenile justice reform and basic you know, health care and education and these types of issues. Um, she was sort of brought into the gun debate because she was the chair of the State Affairs Committee, which is where all the gun bills went. Um, and as Denise mentioned, this was in the aftermath of the Aurora movie theater shooting that had happened the summer before. And so the Democrats um, finally felt like they had a mandate uh, to pass gun safety legislation. Um, And so, you know, that started, and interestingly enough, this was the session that was jokingly referred to as the session of gays, guns, and grass, because during (laughs) this session, we also passed civil unions um, and marijuana legalization, which were huge issues, and also um, the Colorado Asset Bill that Angela had worked, you know, nearly 10 years to pass. These bills all passed sort of easily because the gun issue sort of overshadowed everything else. And so starting in January in the session, um, when the the idea of gun control was first floated, our offices were flooded with nonstop emails, phone calls, visits from gun activists 
um, and many of them were not even from Pueblo, and many of them were not even from Colorado. Um, but I think it shows you how organized the gun lobby is. They were bringing hundreds of activists from nearby states. We have Wyoming, which is a very conservative pro-gun state just north, um, and, and other states as well. They were uh, busing hundreds of people to town halls and to senators' offices to speak out against what many people in Colorado thought was was very reasonable gun safety legislation. And so, um, you know, Angela was targeted because she was the chair of a very influential committee, um, and also uh, the president of the Senate at the time, John Morse, was mm -hmm. also targeted. He was from Colorado Springs, um, or is from Colorado Springs, and he, they were both uh, recalled. And this process required the gathering of, I, I believe it was 20,000 signatures. Yeah, it's a percentage of the previous year's turnout, or the previous election's turnout. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not a small amount yeah. of signatures, like a pretty huge mm. amount. So right. it's a committed effort to actually get these together. It's Big not, time. You can't just do it in the weekend. Right. 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 Yeah, so the, the campaign to recall both of these senators was started halfway through the session, mm -hmm. um, and it was extremely... Um, it was intense. It was very hateful. It was really um, aggressive, um, and you know there was people walking around, you know, Pueblo collecting these signatures from from uh, regular civilians who I don't think saw it coming. And many people signed the petition not knowing what it really was. They were misled into signing a petition thinking it was in support of Angela when really it wasn't. Um, and so anyway, the, they gathered the signatures. There and, the, was, and the people in Pueblo who started the campaign were particularly interesting because they really like branded themselves as these three plumbers from Pueblo, just yeah. like a bunch of normal dudes. Right. Um, who were receiving, you know, thousands of dollars right. in backing from the NRA. You know, maybe not directly to their own bank and, accounts, yeah. but certainly had the support of the NRA early on. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good point, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I really see Pueblo as sort of like the exact place, like the perfect storm of something like this happening, mm. because it is a democratic stronghold historically in Colorado, but that's primarily because of the labor and union influences of that town. So there's been a lot of uh, steel workers, for instance, mm -hmm. and so there's this blue-collar working-class bedrock to that town, and when you look at the liberal coalition, the democratic coalition generally, the unions and the gun violence prevention groups are actually very strange bedfellows. Mm -hmm. uh, so That's you find true. a lot of people who, sure, they're going to vote for a Democrat, and on top of that, they're going to vote for a woman, a Latina woman, for their state senator, but if she infringes on their gun rights, they're going to vote her out. Mm -hmm. So it really, I mean, it was a very unique situation where that was going to happen. I mean, same thing with Colorado Springs, because yeah. Colorado Springs had a district in the state that had the highest rate of gun violence in Colorado, but then also is home to Focus on the Family, the incredibly right-wing, socially conservative group. So, I mean, like, you get these two places where these social influences are, like, really at a head, yeah. and it just, I mean, it exploded. It was crazy. Yeah, and I also would like to add, too, that there was... Um, quite a bit of, I mean, naturally there's a lot of politics involved. I think it's important to note that, um, you know, in that session, um, we had passed a Voter Modernization Act that guaranteed mail-in ballots for mm -hmm. all voters, 
um, and that this was not used in the recall election. The election was triggered at a time when people are not used to elections. Um, it was in September. We struggled to even find polling places for people to vote. And, um, and the Secretary of State at the time um, was a very conservative guy who um, there was questions about whether he even checked the signatures that were gathered um, and it was sort of all rushed. So when the election itself happened, there was so much confusion about where to vote, how to vote. Um, there was there weren't like adequate voting places in Pueblo West in particular. I think there were only two polling places. Mm -hmm. And the election itself was extremely intimidating. A lot of us were out canvassing and we saw people who were, you know, armed and were close to the polling locations, but as long as they were a certain distance from the door, the police were unwilling to do anything about it. Because they could open carry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they so were wearing t-shirts with yeah. assault rifles. They were standing around in groups, and it was, you know, it was groups of men who were obviously there to intimidate voters and they the distance thing seems really strange because you know bullets can travel yeah you know it's right, not exactly. like they just stop at the the distance yeah and yeah. i think that's important to note that you know on one hand we have to sort of applaud the gun rights activists for being so well organized and you know being willing to put their money and their time where their values are on the other hand the tactics that were used uh, in pueblo and i'm sure in many other communities were extremely undemocratic and you know sort of pushed their will onto um, many people who really, you know, wouldn't, weren't willing to risk their lives and their safety to vote in any, you know, on any right, issues. Right. So. And so going back to, to you know, your, your work and thinking about the kind of coalitions we've been talking about, what, where do you see things going now? I mean, you, you wrote a really good blog post uh, for our Sense of Blog recently about the intersection of how the LGBTQ plus movement can actually uh, hook up with the gun control movement. Do you see that? And is there anything that people can do at the state level to sort of overcome future recalls? Is that macro or is it micro? Sure, sure. It's a great question. Um, so I think another um, thing that the Pueblo story really highlights is the NRA's political savvy. So while certainly some of these activities could have been um, seen as undemocratic, the NRA has historically used tactics that are not, um, not like avant-garde, but have used interesting strategies to get their policies passed. Um, one example would be the legislation they passed um, to prevent any research on gun violence mm -hmm. in, the, in the federal government um, by the CDC. So that, at the time, an odd, an odd policy move, but now, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, when gun control activists are trying to come forward and pass policy in an evidence-based policy environment, we have nothing. There is there is very little to go on. So that's another reason why domestic violence has sort of made headway, is there is a lot of research on domestic violence specifically that does include guns, um, that is not gun control research. So a lot of these um, gun rights activists can team up with domestic violence researchers and activists and use the statistics that are really startling and very stark for people making decisions on these issues. To the point of the LGBTQ plus movement teaming up with the gun control movement, one of the reasons, as I said in the, in the 
write-up that I did that I think this could be a really powerful connection is that one of the weaknesses of the gun control movement has historically been a really motivated base. So people definitely, when you ask them in opinion polls, do you think that guns should be regulated? 80%, upwards of 90% say yes. But when you ask people what is, their, what is the most important issue to them right now, gun control rarely ranks top, right? For a lot of people, it is women's issues, it's family issues, it's LGBTQ plus rights. Um, so those social issues that really hit home and really hit on individual rights, um, the right to marry, the right to an abortion, those sorts of things, are much better for organizing around for social movements. Gun control as sort of a general policy is much less tangible to movement participants. Um, so the teaming up of those two groups, I think, could really bring sort of an influx of fresh recruits and advocates into the gun control movement that it's really historically lacked. On top of that, the LGBTQ plus movement has been incredibly successful in making policy change. I mean, they are just, they have been unbelievable in their success rate over the past 10 years. So that sort of policy knowledge, knowledge of how federalism works, um, ways of getting around of using the court system, the, the state legislator, the federal legislator all together is something the NRA has always done and the gun control movement has struggled to do. So I think that that connection could be really powerful. Okay, well, I'd like to, to thank everyone, Sasha Milanova, Sierra Smarka, and Denise Barron. And thanks for listening to this episode of Extra Innings. We'll be back next time on The Ballpark. The Ballpark was produced by Denise Barron with contributions from co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson. That's me and also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. And here's the legal bit. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Centre or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscentre at lse.ac.uk. You can also send us an audio message of up to one minute with your comments. We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails, and audio recordings on an Extra Innings podcast later this season. Thanks for listening.